This podcast is sponsored by Glory Lost and Found, the book from the publishers of Airline Weekly, which tells the story of how Delta rose from despair to dominance in the post-9-11 era. Glory Lost and Found is now available as an audiobook on Audible and iTunes. It's also on Kindle and in paperback. Hop on Amazon and search Delta Book. With United launching a big upgrade last week, we're going to talk a bit about premium product in this episode. Now, I know this is something that was well covered in the news last week, but we've got a unique perspective because we have the globetrotting Seth Kaplan, our managing partner who reports on airline products for Airline Weekly and who was there in New York for United's big reveal last week. I'm going to ask Seth about what he saw and what he thinks. We're also going to discuss Interjet's OK first quarter in New Mexico, how American is changing its frequent flyer program, how low oil prices are affecting airlines and oil markets, and we have a special announcement at the end of the show. Uh, how special? I'm not sure I like the sound of that. I'm Jason Cottrell, and the Airline Weekly Lounge is starting right now. Thanks for joining us. So Seth went to New York last week to get acquainted with United's new suite of premium products. My first question is, is it pronounced Polaris or Polaris? You know, I went all the way to New York and I didn't come back with the answer to that, did I? <laughs> In my head, you know, I, I, I look at it and I see Polaris. Uh, I just actually went back and listened to uh, Oscar Munoz, the CEO of United, talking about it. He said Polaris. Uh, pretty sure a lot of other people were saying Polaris. You know, honestly, I'm sure they came up with the name partly because it's one that can be pronounced phonetically in a lot of languages, you know, Spanish-speaking customers in, in the many markets in, in Latin America and Spain that United serves are going to say Polaris, and that's that's fine. Uh, but yeah, apparently uh, they don't care how you pronounce it as long as you buy really expensive tickets to fly to places very far from where you're starting. Okay, see, these are the things you can explore with the podcast medium. <laughs> you know. this, the, the whole pronunciation question wouldn't work so well in print. No, it wouldn't. Okay, so uh, real quick, what is Polaris Polaris? First and foremost, uh, the brand of the new premium cabin, uh, the new business class cabin, essentially. But it's more than that. They're, they're going to just kind of brand their whole suite of products, their whole suite of premium products, rather, that. So um, so the lounges, well, I should say more precisely, the what used to be the global first lounges. Okay, so these are the sort of the ultra premium lounges, not just the ones that you get to use, what are called United Club used to in the old days be the red carpet club uh you know the ones that elites traveling on long haul economy tickets or lounge members get to use you know these are for people who are you know actually paid you know premium flyers uh, on, on long haul itineraries and so anyway those will be called polaris lounges uh, they'll have uh you know top shelf liquor and gourmet food and and the rest of it and then yeah most prominently of all the new business class cabin uh complete with direct dial access that's this decade's version of live flat seats you know that started off that's what you need was a live flat seat uh now that's almost a given uh, almost everyone has that but 
uh, now sort of the differentiator is, you know, are you going to give me direct dial access or not? You know, am I going to spend five or $10,000 and have somebody climbing over me in the middle of the night? Or am I going to have to climb over somebody or, uh, or not? Uh, and United with this uh, now becomes a member of the direct aisle access club. Oscar Munoz said at the event that they've, what they found is that premium customers tend to value sleep above all else. My question is, was that such a mystery? You know, I, I, I wish I had counted how many times uh, he used the word sleep, certainly he and, and everybody else involved, because, yeah, that's clearly what this was all about. Uh, it, it's not that it's new that, you know, people flying long haul business class want sleep, but uh, what does seem to have evolved or at least what airlines have, have, have recognized more and more, pro- probably a combination of the two, is that, yeah, more than the meal and the drinks and the rest of it. People really want to be able to sleep, you know, to the extent that they might be willing to give up a little bit of some of the other amenities in exchange for uh, just the best sleep possible. So when you see, uh, you know, the lounges getting nicer and nicer in terms of the kinds of food that they're offering, that's related to a lot of people who now just want to get on board and sleep. So uh, they perhaps don't care as much about the food as as, uh, people in the old days. They perhaps don't even care as much about the in-flight entertainment you know, if all they want to do is sleep. There's some evidence of that with this product that uh, United cer- certainly, you know, not skimping on everything on anything, but you know, some of those other things. You know, I don't know that they've gone out to try to have the very best uh, of the rest of it in the world. But uh, you know, what they're saying is, hey, you're going to sleep as well as you're going to sleep uh, on on any airline in the world. And uh, yeah, that's that's what uh, what people do seem to want. Uh, and, and by the way, Jason, you know, this is going to vary a little bit market by market in terms of, you know, if you are flying to Asia from North America on a, a 12, 14, 15 hour flight, you're, you're going to probably spend part of that flight awake. It's when you're flying to Europe uh, where, you know, the, the the length of the flight is sometimes less than, you know, the length of a good night's sleep where people, yeah, they seem to just really want to get on board and sleep. Did you try out the seats? Yeah, and they're nice. You know, they are, as I said, uh, you know, look, United is not going to come out and say, hey, we have a, 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 a pretty good product, <laughs> you know, a competitor product. They're, of course, going to say, hey, look, we've got the best product out there. But yeah, uh, you know, truthfully, it's it's um, it, it's in the ball game with 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 all the other with all the other rather good uh, that are that are out there. This is somebody other something other people point out to me that uh, you know the tray table uh, you know maybe isn't the biggest you know for, for people who like to be able to sort of put their laptop next to their food or at least their drink uh, you know that sort of thing the uh, you know the video monitor isn't the biggest one in in the marketplace although it's you know at 16 inches it's it's rather nice but yeah no the seats are they are six feet six inches long and uh and they're comfortable you know the the bedding is nice it's a it, it's a it's a competitive product and particularly with the direct aisle access uh you know that that's what united was really going for here above all else you know delta and american have gone to direct aisle uh products and so that was something where again when you're trying to you know sell those very expensive tickets to corporate customers um in a competitive market you know if you were uh united in chicago going up against you know american there uh, which has a very nice business class product uh arguably still better in this one although it's you know now it's very close in other regards but the difference between uh, you know a direct dial access product and one that's not um was a very big uh, issue for united and, and that's 
no longer something where they're going to be at a competitive disadvantage. They're going to be able to go into the marketplace and, and you know, uh, and sell this product as totally competitive against the other uh, products that are that are in the marketplace in terms of its U.S. competition. Uh, you know, it, in some regard, I mean, look, United's partner Lufthansa is not a direct aisle access uh, airline. So in that so in that regard, at least United actually will have the the superior product to that of its uh, joint venture partner. We said in Airline Weekly the seat layout is patented. Does United own the patent or the seat manufacturer? Actually, neither. Uh, the The inventor uh, owns the patent. He's I have his business card here somewhere on my desk. Uh, Ian Drybra is his name. The company is Acumen, uh, Acumen Design Associates. So he um, he actually was telling me the story. Uh, interesting guy. So he actually is a former British Airways employee who who did this sort of stuff there. And he said he was, uh, if I recall correctly, the story on a train one day of all places. Um, and it just sort of all came to him, you know, the way to, the way to do this. And he sort of rushed to, you know, get to the table and, and draw up the, uh, the layout. And, uh, so yeah, so he's the patent holder. The, uh, manufacturer is Zodiac Aerospace, uh, which is nice for them because they've kind of had a, a difficult year or so here, uh, with some pretty well, well-documented production issues. Um, seats where you've had airlines actually uh, cancel orders with them and, and pick competitors like the aerospace instead, you know, because it's, it's issues that have impacted the ability to get expensive aircraft into service anyway. So a, a nice one for Zodiac to, you know, if, if, if this does well, uh, this product to be the manufacturer here and to, you know, gain the confidence of, of a giant airline like United in the process. And so, yeah, so it's, you know, Acumen's the, 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 the inventor, the patent holder, Zodiac, manufacturer and United the airline. A lot, of, a lot of cooks in this kitchen, for sure. So now that United has Polaris, how does it compare to Delta and American for the business traveler? I, I know you touched on this quite a bit, but what are some of the differences or comparisons, contrasts that you didn't touch on? You know, honestly, for, for one thing, it's it's a little bit hard to do the comparison in a vacuum. You know, they had uh, uh, very realistic, I mean, you know, the, the actual seats uh, there at the event in New York, but you know you're in a you're in a theater uh, in Manhattan with the sort of the center section of uh, uh, if you picture like the uh, you know the outboard seats and then the you know the seats in the in the center, uh, so it was the center section um, in the middle of this in the middle of this theater with all these uh, you know other exhibits around and at the bedding and all this sort of thing. So it, it's a little bit hard to sit in the seat in a vacuum there. And compare it to what it's like to walk onto a, you know, an American Airlines triple seven and sit in an actual seat, looking at an actual uh, aircraft window and that sort of thing. The the American seats are really nice. Uh, you know, deltas are are are, are fine. So yeah, um, hard to say for sure. My suspicion, my hunch is that, um, you, you know, that that Americans might still be, uh, you know, considered the the uh, the marginally more comfortable product, but but that the difference you know might not be important enough that somebody you know would choose the airline with all the other things that you're thinking about when you're buying a ticket, you know, the schedule and the rest of it. Um, whereas without the aisle access on United, you know, with their older product, uh, yeah, you know, the Delta and American had a, a very clear product advantage, and you can imagine somebody choosing one of them over United. I, I, I don't think if United is at any of a disadvantage at all, I, I don't think the uh, the difference will be important. Um, you know, even with some of the soft product things, if, if I'm not mistaken, American 
at its new premium lounges, is is doing uh, you know table side dining. Uh, United at the Polaris lounges, uh, it's going to be a buffet. You know, I mean, rather nice food, uh, rather clearly. But uh, but you know, if somebody values table side over over buffet. Uh, you know, assuming my my understanding of that was correct, you know, that would be another area where you know american might have an edge but but again uh you know we're, we're splitting hairs here united has a competitive business class product okay exciting stuff from united uh we referenced in airline weekly but um didn't really discuss this we referenced how airlines whose home markets are oil markets are doing surprisingly well despite low oil prices and a couple who fit this bill are air canada and emirates those airlines buy jet fuel too, and when the uh, the very most important cost item falls so much in cost that it is well, no longer the very most important cost item for some airlines. And some airlines now labor costs, uh, you know, have become uh, you know they now weigh more than fuel costs. You know, that's a tremendous, very certain benefit for uh, for almost all airlines. Now, of course, you have the the mitigating factor, you know, the, the wrong way hedges and the, the currency issues and so forth. But, you know, having fuel prices fall a lot is a really good place to start for uh, for any airline, including airlines in, in oil markets. Now, in the case of Emirates, you know, obviously they're, they're largely a six freedom carrier that is, you know, selling airline tickets to people in other places, uh, the majority of their traffic connects to Dubai. You know, somebody flying from Geneva to, you know, Melbourne or whatever, you know, it doesn't matter that it's Emirates selling that person a ticket as, as opposed to, um, uh, you know, just some other airline that's not based in an oil market. So, you know, a, a lot of their revenue comes from outside oil markets. You mentioned Air Canada. I mean, there, there, you know, there's a lot else that's gone right for Air Canada. They've, they've, uh, you know, they've densified their fleet in very dramatic ways. They, uh, uh, you know, obviously have, they have Rouge and the rest of it, a little really to say you know, exactly how successful that is, you know, and, and aside from that, Canada, very broadly speaking, yes, has uh, has a lot of oil, um, but Air Canada at least is um, a little bit more exposed to the parts of Canada that don't depend as much on oil. You know, WestJet, as as much of a pan-Canadian and at this point, you know, global airline as it's become, still, uh, you know, the, the, don't don't forget that West in, in WestJet, you know, it, it still has been more exposed to Alberta province, Edmonton and its home uh, city, Calgary, uh, although it's it's you know, diversified nicely in recent years, um, whereas Air Canada has had a little bit less of that exposure. But yeah, broadly speaking, uh, it, it, it's a cost story. Uh, you know, the the, uh, the oil related revenue issues are real for those airlines, um, but they just haven't been enough in those cases to overcome the very, very positive impact on costs uh, from falling fuel prices. There are, to be sure, airlines that have, you know, where the revenue pressures have been so severe that the falling fuel prices, often because of, you know, also wrong way hedges and, and forex issues and so forth, have, have not helped them save the day. What about Aeroflot? I've heard that Russia is a pretty big oil market. <laughs> it, what kind of effect does... Cheap oil had on them. Yeah, um, well, it's it's a lot of the same stuff I said before. Um, uh, you know, big six freedom carrier. They've they've um, done a really nice job building up Moscow as a uh, as a connecting hub. Uh, nice geographic position for connecting people in a lot of markets between the you know the Far East and, and Europe and so forth. Just just overall a, a competitive cost base compared to to some 
years. And, um, and, you know, look, they've, they've benefited from a few things. Um, first of all, precisely because of the issues in Russia, they've had competitors, important competitors, fail or, or you know, at least downsize significantly in other cases. Um, so they're positioned to pick up some of that traffic. They've reoriented themselves a lot uh, to to domestic flying, where you know Russians who who maybe aren't aren't as uh, well positioned to to travel abroad because of currency issues, they they'll go to you know domestic destinations, Black Sea and so forth, and uh, so so they've you know positioned themselves to capture a lot of that again, especially in light of uh, just some of the other competition going away, and so yeah, no, they've they've been uh, they've been rather nimble. They benefit also from the fact that all the overflight fees that the carriers from around the world pay when they fly over Russia actually go straight to Aeroflot. That's pretty helpful. But that's not new. That's that's always been the case. So the fact that they've held up as well as they have is uh you know certainly a credit to to uh to to how nimble they've been in, in adjusting to the circumstances. And Brazil is a big oil market. What about gold? Oof, yeah, that, that's one where um you know things there have gotten so bad. And it's not that airlines, uh, you know, haven't cut capacity and tried to get capacity, uh, you know, back in line with demand. But it's just that demand has dropped so far that there's just not much that anybody could do. So, yeah, in Brazil, I mean, it's it, it, it's oil issues, but it's um, uh, sort of related to that just deeply depreciated currency. I mean, as an airline, it's pretty hard to have your to wake up and have your currency's value, you know, slashed in you know, nearly half. Uh, and, and, you know, you're stuck paying for fuel in U.S. dollars, essentially. Uh, you're stuck paying for your aircraft in U.S. dollars. All of a sudden, the cost of all that, you know, in some cases is, is, is like double. I mean, in the case of fuel costs, not double, of course, because fuel costs have fallen in dollar terms. But, you know, they, they haven't gotten the the benefit uh, in, in, in terms of their local currency. And so, uh, yeah, no, that's one where, you know, they've gotten all the downside of, of uh, falling oil prices, uh, not just falling oil per se, but also just all the currency issues and uh, not much of the benefit because of, of the Forex issues, which have, you know, basically uh, nullified all the benefits of cheap oil. How about Norwegian? Well, yeah, I mean, Norway has, has suffered for sure. You know, domestic markets. Stavanger Houston was, uh, you know, as a creative long haul market that they were flying with, you know, uh, very sort of sparsely configured 737s. And, uh, you know, one of those things that you, you kind of rooted for, right? You'd love to see something like that succeed. Well, you know, it had no chance because of, of because they launched it just as in retrospect, just as oil was was preparing to tumble. Uh, that That's that's SAS to be clear. I'm talking about there. But so you know, just just to speak in general of what's happening in, in Norway and yeah, Norwegian themselves, not immune to any of it. Uh, you know, with them, they're growing so rapidly and uh, doing so many other things that carry their own risks that it's it's a little bit harder to tease out the the precise impact of uh, oil's fall in terms of Norwegian markets on Norwegian versus just you know just some of the other issues that they have. But uh, you know, and, and that's that's uh, that's not most of what they do. Um, they're also just sort of a, you know, a pan-European LCC and obviously a long-haul one as well. Um, but yeah, no, it, not, none of that is, is helpful. So when you look at their margins, um, which significantly lag those of other giant European LCCs uh, like Ryanair and EasyJet and Voiling, yeah, the, the, uh, the, the fact that they're based in Norway uh, is, is 
not helpful because now that means not only cost issues, uh, you know, Croatia is an expensive place to do business. Of course, they've uh, well documented, they, 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 they've tried to address that through the subsidiaries elsewhere for long haul flying and just through bases elsewhere for European flying. But they also have revenue issues and, and you know, uh, a high cost uh, country where revenue is under pressure is, is, is obviously not a good recipe for success. And these aren't airlines, but they are oil markets. What about Nigeria and Venezuela? Yeah, well, they're not airlines because because those countries have other issues that have pre- prevented airlines from uh, from succeeding there. Um, and uh, you know, you're just talking about mismanaged economies, which um, you know, where you can talk about certain places holding up reasonably well. Uh, you know, Canada because its economy is diversified. Norway because it it uh, you know saved for a rainy day and and uh, and so forth. Not the case in in those places. And the issues there go go beyond just demand in terms of the impact on on airlines. You know, Venezuela for a while now, and 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 uh, it's becoming increasingly apparent Nigeria as well. Uh, airlines have just had a hard time getting their basically getting their cash out of the countries. Uh, you know, the countries playing games with exchange rates and so forth, and um, not uh, uh, not making it easy for airlines to repatriate. Uh, their revenues. So uh, yeah, those those are places where you know the uh, the old Warren Buffett saying about you know when the tide goes out, it's when you can see who's swimming naked. Well, uh, you know those those countries were indeed swimming naked for a long time, and the tide's out. <laughs> All right, uh, IATA had its annual general meeting, the AGM, and it was apparently uh, marked by its upbeat outlook. Do you think the industry knows it's having a really good year? And, and what I mean is there there seems to be a disconnect between the numbers and the mood out there. Or am I imagining such a disconnect? Yeah, well, and of course, you know, you've got airlines from all over the world in very different situations. Yeah, it, it's uh, you're right. I, I think when you look at the aggregate numbers and you see how well the industry is doing, you know, well, I mean, to just one example, uh, take a look at airline shares, you know, uh, stock prices of airlines. You know, they've in many cases been been trending downward, you know, even as the industry, as you said, might end up having its its uh, its best year ever. Well, of course, stock prices are driven largely by expectations. And, and uh, you know, what you have there is, is some legitimate concern about, you know, whether whether this is uh, well, I think quote a Warren Buffett before, I guess now we could do Jack Nicholson, you know, as good as it gets. Right. You, you know, whether times are about to get uh, tougher. And it's a fair question to ask because we see fuel prices going up and we see revenues continue under pressure. And so at some point, uh, you, you know, you can't have those two things happening without seeing downward pressure, uh, not only on the top line, but also on the bottom line. So uh, and, and, you know, and, and you can bet that 2017 will be more difficult if, in fact, fuel prices have risen and and, uh, and revenues haven't. Uh, risen in tandem. So, so, you know, the, the, the concerns are, are legitimate, but, um, but yes, important to acknowledge that this is an industry that's still doing uh, very, very well by, by its historical standards. Mexico's Interjet reported a 7% operating margin in Q1. Not terrible, but not great. 7% was better than Aeromexico's 5% margin, but not as good as Viva Aerobus's 15% or Volaris's 16%. Or is it Valeris's 16%? <laughs> now that all the first quarter results are in, what do you make of the Mexican market? It's uh, Valaris, the the ultra dense, uh, ultra LCC, not to be confused with Polaris, the uh, the rather dense all aisle access business class cabin for United, right? It's 
look, it, not 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 terribly surprising when you look at the the business models there. Interjet, they've believed that they could have this rather upmarket product that gives you know lots of legroom to everybody, uh, and 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 the rest of it, and get the revenue premiums that they need to match uh, Valaris's profits and. For that matter, profits at, at uh, Viva Aerobus, but you know when you look around the world, um, there was just too much evidence to suggest, and you know, we've been writing this for years, nearly weekly, that uh, that they would struggle to do that. And, uh, and and sure enough, yeah, I mean it's just the the ultra LCC model is really powerful. You know, it's it's the whole idea of more room throughout coach. I mean, it's not just an LCC thing. You know, American Airlines tried it. You know, a decade and a half ago, and it, it just never really seems to work you know there are people who are willing to pay for extra legroom but you can't generally fill an entire cabin with them uh you know that's why we see JetBlue about to densify so you know that's probably something that that uh interjet would would want to look at if they're interested in, in matching the margins of the other carriers that to be clear that's not the only thing that's different about them uh you know they have been largely just a domestic airline uh, with a few international routes whereas volaris has been much more of an international specialist, a lot of transporter routes. So, so yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to say exactly. I, I mean, look, another thing, uh, Interjet has a, a fleet of smaller aircraft, the, the, the Russian you know, Superjet 100s, um, you know, whereas the, its competitors have uh, generally one fleet type, or at least they're transitioning to just one fleet type. Uh, you know, there too, I mentioned JetBlue before, you know, rather clear that you know, to, to the extent that JetBlue has been successful, it's not because of the Embraer 190s in its fleet. Um, you, know, you know, that's that's something where sort of long struggle to to find something profitable to do with them. Uh, and, and perhaps Interjet is having those same struggles. Uh, to be clear, it, it doesn't do earnings calls and everything. It's not a traded airline. It's nice enough to publish its 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 financials, which gives us a chance to do the analysis. But, uh, you know, we don't get the same level of, of commentary as, as you get from the uh uh, from the traded airlines, you know, just in terms of the LCCs, the difference between them. Uh, and let's see now as Interjet flies more abroad as it's doing and as open skies or open-ish skies, whatever you want to call it, you know, something uh, that's, that's uh, essentially open skies from a passenger airline perspective uh, comes into force, you know, airlines with some new opportunities uh, also see see what uh, uh, see what they do. You know, for Aeromexico, you mentioned their their margin uh, is is the lowest among the major airlines there, but they have perhaps the most upside because they're uh, you know trying to get into a joint venture here with Delta. And the history is that really good things happen when airlines get into joint ventures uh, with Delta. Uh, which is uh, you know, also, of course, a major uh, equity holder of Aeromexico. So a uh, lot to be excited about for them. And yeah, a market uh, or oil markets that have held up rather well. Well, you'd have to call Mexico uh, one of those as well. A lot of, uh, you know, it's it's an oil exporting nation with, with, with these four major airlines that are doing rather well, despite currency issues and the rest of it, which have certainly impacted the country. And slightly north of the Mexican border, American Airlines is changing its frequent flyer program. Following Delta and United's lead, American's Advantage program will be dollar-based rather than points-based. Seth, you follow these programs pretty intently. Anything jump out at you regarding this change? Yeah, what jumps out at me is that nothing jumps out at me. It's uh, you know they've they've basically just just copied exactly what uh, what Delta and United have done. That's that's a significant moment if you think about it, because um, you know uh, Advantage was the very first frequent flyer program in the world um you know the first program to award miles and now that very first program to award miles is essentially not awarding miles anymore although they're 
called Miles, but that, that's just semantics. Yeah, basically they, uh, you know, no, no big surprise. I mean, they had indicated that they were likely to uh, you know, do something like this. Although at times they've sort of said, oh, you know, we might do do our own thing. Um, but yeah, they didn't, they didn't really do that. They, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be points based. The calculations are just like Dalton United. Uh, they have introduced a new elite tier. It's called Platinum Pro. Um, but that also is just because it's something that they didn't have that the others had. Basically, you know, everybody had a 25,000 mile and a 50,000 mile elite tier. American didn't have a 75,000 mile tier, uh, whereas both Delta and United had that. Now they do. Uh, they rolled out the the spend requirements uh, to to attain elite status, uh, just like Delta and United have. You know, now you on American would have to, in addition to flying a lot, have to spend three, six, nine, or twelve thousand dollars, depending on what tier you're you know trying to qualify for. No, no big, uh, no big difference. Big difference for American <laughs> compared to what it was doing before, but uh, you know, no notable difference at all compared to Delta and United. You know, hard to see any differentiators in those programs at this point that would make somebody much more likely to, uh, uh, to, to choose an airline based on one of those programs than the other. You know, certain things like the, 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 uh, the upgrade priorities are, are a little bit different on each airline. So, you know, depending on in some cases, somebody who flies a lot might do better on one airline compared to, you know, somebody who spends a lot doing a little better on another, but, uh, by and large, they're, they're all peas in a pod. All right, that wraps up the airline content of our show. Now for that special announcement I mentioned. There's no easy way to say it, but as it stands now, we don't have a sponsor for next week's show. Yeah, we didn't really have a sponsor for this week's show, did we? Yeah, I imagine keen listeners figured that out when they heard the book advertisement. So at the outset of the bold experiment called the Airline Weekly Lounge, we made a commitment to ourselves and the Airline Weekly shareholders— which is pretty much the same people, that we continue doing this only as long as we can find sponsors to pay for at least some of it. But people like it, don't they? They do. May was our most successful month ever in terms of downloads, and the growth trajectory has been strong and steady really from the get-go 11 months ago. I hear from people all the time how much they like it. So what happens now? We do have some irons in the fire, but no commitment yet. If one of those doesn't come through... We won't be back next week. And I just wanted to let our listeners know what happened to us. For Seth Kaplan, I'm Jason Cottrell. And this concludes what might be the last episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge. So, Jason, if we get a sponsor, will we be back? Oh, yes. And it'll make for great radio. Radio.